and welcome to Pause Pop, positively pop culture, where we talk about things we love enthusiastically and without guilt. I'm K.W. Taylor. And I'm Carrie Gessner. And this week, we're bringing back frequent guest and pop culture scholar Robin to discuss the HBO series The Leftovers. So we're here with Robin. It's been a little bit since we've had you on the show. Remind our listeners a little bit about yourself. Well, first, I'm always surprised when you invite me back. (laughs) About me, uh, I am currently a doctoral candidate. Excuse me, I'm now a doctoral candidate. And I, yeah, what, but who am I? That is just such an existential question. (laughs) You may remember me from talking about, what did we talk about last time? Some sci-fi romance. Yes. Oh, Melrose Place. Yeah. Talk about the prisoner. And the, the prisoner, prisoner, yeah. So Yeah. <laughs> and today we're having you come on to talk about The Leftovers, which I know is one of your favorite shows of all time. Definitely in top five. Nice. Cool. Well, I'm ready here to hear all about it because I don't know anything about it, but in the minutes before we started recording, you guys were praising it highly. So <laughs> And you had yeah, and Carrie, you had asked, you said you want to be convinced. You want us to convince you to watch it. And I actually don't, I actually try, don't talk about it a lot with people because I start saying it's like the best thing. It'll change your, you know what I mean? As soon as somebody tells you that, like, I know if somebody said that to me, I'd be like, I'm never watching that. Ever. It's just, it's because it's hard to downplay yeah, it I get because that. Yeah. it's just so good. Yeah. yeah. And I started watching it on a whim when I first got HBO Max and it did not take me very long to watch the entire series because it was just so compelling. So give us a little like the the basics of the premise of it if you don't mind. me oh yes. okay i no, me actually i'm gonna do <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> i actually was <laughs> about to say now i'm gonna say it. i was like i actually watched it as it aired look at me oh. so special week to week pre-binge <laughs> i um so it's based on a book by and the name is totally escaping me the author who wrote very famous author who wrote Little Children. Tom Parada. Tom Parada. Um, a lot of his book, his books are considered suburban noir, and a lot of them have been turned into movies. So uh, Little Children. What else? Oh, Election. And recently they made oh, his yeah. book another book. Wow, I'm ha- really having a senior moment. Um, his latest book was also <laughs> recently a miniseries on HBO with Catherine Hahn. Uh, Mrs. Fletcher. Oh, yes. And so this book is based on that. And actually, the first season follows the the plot of the book. And then the second and third season are kind of their own story. And the basic plot is that about it's like one percent of the population suddenly disappears in a rapture like event. And the event is not really explained, but people just literally vanish, like just poof and they're gone. And The book is about a small town in upstate New York and kind of people living there and how they're dealing with the aftermath. So there's definitely speculation about what what the event is. But um, the book and definitely the first season is really more focused on how people are dealing with the grief and the loss. And I think I think that's one of the things I like about it is because it's not it's still a drama about interpersonal relationships with this event that just happened to occur that affects everybody. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Yeah. And there's there's a basically following the core main character, Kevin Garvey, played by Justin Thoreau, who's a police chief in this small town. And then people that are either related to him, friends with him, 
related to his wife. And then, oh, we didn't really mention this, but there's a there's a cult in the first yes. season. Yeah. Oh, boy. The Guilty Remnants. And they are yeah. a cult that formed sort of about how they feel like this event was a worldwide event to like make people. It was a punishment. And it's sort of got Christian overtones, but it's basically saying people need to repent because we've been punished and you must take a vow of silence and living in group term in like, you know, in the book, I know that they made people sell their houses or give up the lease to their houses to the cult so they could all live together in the house. Mm -hmm. And they also smoke cigarettes and wear white all the time. Yeah. And their, their, I guess their purpose and their mission statement or whatever is so fuzzy and strange that I spent a lot of the first season really wanting to know their their core belief system. And you kind of summarized it pretty well, but it's also some of them have a little bit more of a nihilistic bent to them. And some people seem to want more of a monastic existence. And then we get some violent tendencies too. Hmm. They commit sort of acts of extreme, not really terrorism, but like they inflict mental anguish on other people. And they stoned a member as well. Yeah, I'm just, it's been a while since I'm watching. And also it's hard for me to sort of think about like the the book and the first season like are kind of being mm-hmm. conflated for me. Yeah. Normally I don't like an adaptation of a book, but this one I I really did like. And I think in the first season, the, a little bit of the missteps, because there were a little hiccups that maybe were most fleshed out, I think was about trying to adapt from the book. Mm. So in the book, Kevin's daughter's friend, Amy, they become a couple mm-hmm. after she graduates high school. And they kind of they had her friend in there and there was like a weird sexual tension, but then they dropped it. Mm-hmm. I also want to say about the casting, I don't know if this bothered you, but Justin Thoreau is way too good looking for the role. <laughs> like, I just, and I, it's just, it's like distractingly. And, you know, who, I, you know, like everybody's beautiful, but like a small town, like in that small town, and that's what the, the police chief looked like. Like it just, it doesn't. It takes, I thought it took me out of it. And he's got like, Mm. he's hugely buff and he's got all these like tattoos. It just, it really kind of took me out of the story or maybe it was my own hormones. I don't know. (laughs) I mean, he is a very handsome man. He's pretty objectively handsome. I don't know that I was worried about that. Maybe I was just, (laughs) I wasn't worried. (laughs) But I think one of the things about him as an actor is he, especially as the series goes on and in like the second and third season, he turns in some amazing performance moments. And I think, I don't know, maybe this is just me, but I think people underestimate him because he's very handsome. And yet he's a very good actor. He's also had a very varied career because he also wrote the movie Tropic Thunder Mm -hmm. and wrote, I think, Iron Man 2. Yeah. And then has also these starring roles and was Mr. Jennifer Aniston for a while. Actually, actually, the funny story about that is that Jennifer Aniston was married to him when he was making this and was a fan of the show and never let him talk about it because she wanted to just experience it as a viewer. <laughs> Which I think that's a real <laughs> move. <laughs> like, let him talk about his job. Oh. I think it's cute. No, I thought yeah, it, I think it's cute. I yeah. thought it spoke to the quality of the show that, yeah. that you know, she could be like, I actually don't want to get spoiled. I'm sure he was. I didn't want to be spoiled either. Like once the second and third season, like I really avoided any spoilers because usually I go right to the spoiler. Like I do want to know. Yeah. But the other thing I wanted to say is the woman who plays the head of the cult is played by Anne Dowd, who is Mm -hmm. this century's greatest actress. I was going to ask you about the head of the cult. 
She's so good. Yeah. She's very and good. scary. She's, she's the the main aunt character on A Handmaid's Tale right now. Mm-hmm. And every I, I've never seen her play like a nice character, but she's always playing very compelling, complicated women. And it's it's amazing. She's wonderful. But Amy Brenneman as Kevin's wife. So good. So good. And in the entire first season, she's she barely speaks. Yeah, she's in the cult. She left Kevin and their kids to go join the cult. Oh, okay. Wow. And so she's able to convey so much with just her expressions. And I mean, again, the cast is amazing. The performances are amazing. Christopher Eccleston plays a a semi-disgraced minister. And he, many weird things happen to him over the course of the series. Carrie Coon is in it. It's kind of like her breakout role, kind of. She was, no, it was that. And then Gone Girl came out and she kind of had her moment. Okay. So we've been saying it's a great show, great cast. So what, right? Right, right. So like that's a dime a dozen. So like what what makes it like why is it unique? Why did I cry for like an hour after every episode and like oh think about gosh. it for the next day? I didn't really cry, but like I it's a show that like I thought about several days after I saw an episode. And hmm. Kathleen, I don't know how you felt. I know you binged it. Yeah, I start toward the end of the as I was getting into the final season and stuff, I started going into old Reddit threads of episode discussions that were spoiler free in order to experience what someone like you would have in watching it in real time and just see what people were theorizing. And I have not done that since Lost. And that's, Mm. this is created by, in addition to being based on Tom Prada's novel, it's created by Damon Lindelof, who worked on Lost. And Damon Lindelof and Carlton Cuse were like the showrunners of Lost after J.J. Abrams kind of let them have control. Mm -hmm. And it's interesting to see that Damon Lindelof did the leftovers, which leans into the element of loss that's very quasi-supernatural, interconnected people's relationships, whereas Carlton Cuse went a little bit more in the quasi-horror elements of Lost and did Bates Motel. That's really interesting, yeah. Yeah, and I think both shows are really good, but in very different ways. Like Bates Motel, I watched, but I didn't get into like speculation and theorizing because it was kind of, it was what it was. There was no real mystery element. It was just sort of horror. Whereas The Leftovers, there's this magical realism element and this philosophical element, and it really makes you just wonder. And yet there's also these weird comedic things, too. Yeah. Which I don't want to spoil too much, but there's a, there's a, there's a person, there's an actor that, ha- that plays themselves, and it's ah! out of nowhere, and it's hilarious. You could do, is it, you don't want to say who it is? I don't want to say who it is because it's too cute. And it's, it's like very, uh, it's like. It's like they knew us, Kathleen, in our, in yes. our love of 90s television. <laughs> exactly. It, it reminded me so much of in Zombieland when you've got zombie Bill Murray playing himself. It would be that sort of thing where suddenly this person who is famous plays this fictional version of themselves who themselves experiences the, the trauma of the yeah. sudden departure. But I think that whimsy helps it feel like how people do react in moments of grief, that you have times where something is absurd and almost funny, and then you feel guilty for experiencing joy because you also are experiencing grief. And this shared collective grief, I mean, watching it during the pandemic has been different than probably experiencing it in real time because it, I don't know, I probably was processing a lot of that, of like, it's certainly, you know, larger than the number of people who have died of COVID, but it, it was very 
you know, reminiscent of that. And even though we know what happened to them, it's still all very sudden and upsetting. Like a sudden taking away of people seemingly at random. Yeah, yeah. So then the question is, is this show supernatural or not? Yes. Okay. Would you like like to explain (laughs) my answer? Yes, yes, please. (laughs) Please elaborate. I mean, I, I think supernatural is anything that has... Now, if we're talking about we're getting into like strict genre, Mm -hmm. I think that this is genre defying because I think the reason I like it so much is that it has a sci-fi supernatural element, but it's not the focus. It's like it lives in a world where these people are doing things and interacting and it just happens to also be in this moment, this catalyst moment, because at the end they start talking about, I mean, you can't help but wonder what is this thing. And at the end, Think of the end of the first season when those people wanted to buy the house because they thought, because of Carrie Coon's character, her entire family disappears, her husband's and two kids, which is statistically very weird because it's only like 1% of the population. So there's a theory that there's something going on with her house spatially or like where it's located. So it starts getting into that. But it reminds me of a, a comparable thing is, have you ever read the book, Never Let Me Go, came out a couple years ago? Yeah. yeah. You have read it? Is it that's the one um by a Japanese author? Yes. Um yes. don't ask me who the name is right now. Yeah, I I can't <laughs> I can't think of anything right now. Yeah. <laughs> but in that there was a sci-fi element sort of. Now it wasn't as supernatural, it was more sci-fi, but it wasn't the focus. It was still about like the interpersonal stuff of mm-hmm. what's going on in this background. Kathleen, do you think it's supernatural? I do, but I do think that this is very much in this realm of the magical realism and that its main point is to be philosophical. And I don't know how literally we're supposed to take some of the the things that occur within the reality of the show. And I think that's part of why I find it so compelling because each each strange thing that happens, you can take it as, well, he's just crazy or that's just a random person lying to somebody. Or if you take it you know, for it on its face value, weird stuff is happening. And I really like that slipperiness and the duality of being able to interpret it both ways. So I think I ultimately do think something very, very weird, very uncanny happened, the nature of it. And I don't want to get too much into the finale, but there's a big thing in the finale, the series finale, where you're left going, this person could be completely lying, or they could be completely telling the truth. And depending on what you think about their story, you know, that's kind of the crux of the show. So, but I think also there's a, there's an element that's, it's all about love and what love means. Yeah. Because we follow the, the budding of this relationship between Kevin and Nora. That's her name. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. And, you know, they're both coming from a point of grief when they meet, they go through their relationship together. And it's about if they're able to put primacy on their love versus their grief. And is it, are you able to hold both of those things in the same hand? And that's where you come to the point of having a mature relationship is if you're able to do that, put one aside in favor of the other, you know, you're not living your full truth. If you're able to have them coincide and be okay with that, the sort of pain of that, then that, that kind of cements your relationship in a way. So I don't know. I thought they were that they were doomed and I thought that they were connected more by grief than love. And I think that was the struggle. And maybe they eventually did find love at the end, but like around after they got together 
for real, like in the second season, it was just like they were hiding so many things from each other. They mm-hmm. there was like constant tension mm-hmm. that made it kind of like uncomfortable for a really long time. Well, I think if you're looking at, you know, if you take out the supernatural elements of the show, mm-hmm. you've got a divorced father and a essentially widow yeah. who has also lost her children and that that is, you know, you're both single, you get together and yet the pain of those losses from both of them it doesn't go away just because you find a new relationship. And so I think, you know, you can take all of it as an allegory for how do you have two broken people be able to create something new together? And is that even possible? There were so many episodes that focused on their struggle together that just made me sob. It was just really powerful and real. So yeah, but I, I'm also sort of like, I think I'm a hopeful person in some ways. And so I kind of want all the all the woo-woo stuff to be real. I really do. <laughs> but, <Yeah>. you know. <laughs> that's but, that's your only flaw, Kathleen. You're, like, very positive sometimes. <laughs> but, you know, you can take it, you can take it the other way, too, and find something healing in accepting reality. So I think it just kind of depends on the day and the moment how I feel about it. But there's, there's experimental episodes in every season that are really strong. Regina King is in season two, and she's great. Liv Tyler is really strange and creepy. And Scott Glenn plays Kevin's dad, and he was probably 80 when this was made. And yet, he has some like physical challenging moments that are like, I can't believe that they had this old man wandering in the Australian desert. I know, I did feel kind of bad for the actor. I was like, do they have like a whole like mobile truck with air conditioning? But no, Scott Glenn loved him since Backdraft. That's my introduction to Scott Glenn. Yes. So just one thing I wanted to go back to because the um, Damien Lindelof connection. Mm -hmm. Did you, I found a lot of things and a lot of storytelling similar to Lost. Did you? It it was like very, but like better almost. I listen, I yeah. love Lost. Lost has a lot of problems, but I love it, you know, but Yeah. This is like if if they'd been able to do Lost on HBO to begin with and had the luxury of short seasons and an endgame. This is yeah. like if you take if you put Lost through a through a filter and you only save the best parts, it's like that. <laughs> and you get rid of all the fluff and the extraneous stuff. So yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I so because there was an episode I think it was season one like a dream sequence and it and where Kevin has to escape this hotel mm-hmm. and it almost was like Inception slash something you would see in Lost like yes in the sideways season and there the thing with Lost is Lost is very about shocking and like leaving you at the end which you know can get a little much but I did enjoy it at the time mm-hmm. the leftovers is the pace is is not super fast. Mm-mm. But literally anything could happen. Like they drop bombs at, that are just out of nowhere. And yeah. it like makes sense. Like suddenly a character will come in and announce something or do an action that is so just like, where did this come from? But it somehow makes sense in the scheme of things because they've they've sort of set you up for it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's, again, like reading the reading the Reddit threads of people's theories as they were watching it when it aired without them knowing what was going to happen. You could have a thread where people are like, oh, well, clearly all the dogs are haunted. Like, and that that's a reasonable theory to have about this. Show. Yeah. Yeah. Or, or someone's like, well, that, that, the lion on the cruise ship. Oh, that is my favorite episode. The cruise episode. <laughs> I just got really excited about that. That, yeah. that episode blew me away. 
so they're on they they have to get they have they have to get somewhere and the only way to get where they need to go is like on a party boat but on the party boat there's this like like a sex positive sort of polyamorous group that has a live lion on board so it's like stuff wow. like that and the guy claims to be god so it's like okay this they're all getting on this boat with this lion like that <laughs> yeah. makes sense and the other i didn't mean to interrupt but but carrie if this this hopefully will convince you kathleen <laughs> do you remember the opening to season two that that sort of vignette at the opening like over the credits sequence no the... the opening where it opened up like neanderthal times Oh, yes. Oh, my gosh. That was really powerful. Yeah. So there was a long break between season one, season two. And okay. I think like I actually didn't think it was going to come back because they kind of had completed the book. And not a lot of people were watching it. Like it wasn't a very viewed show. So the second season was really built up. It opens on this. I mean, it's probably not in hand, but I'm very long time ago. <laughs> cave yeah. people cave you know people, yeah. yeah yeah before before spoken like true language you know and there's this group of people living you know they're they're hunting and living in a cave and this woman um this young woman is pregnant so she's with her sort of like extended family then there's a huge earthquake and they get crushed in the cave and she survives oh my gosh so we see her sort of it was almost like the intro to I just don't want to compare her to an eight, but it felt like the the intro to 2001 where you're sort of just yeah. watching this silent action. Mm -hmm. So she, you know, she has to, she has to survive on without the rest of her family. And then she eventually, she has to give birth by herself. And there's a lot, I mean, there's a lot that goes with it that I won't. And it's, it's a lot of it is upsetting. Yeah. And then it was like 20 minutes. It went on like 20 minutes and you're like, what show am I watching? And then it flashes forward to this town in Texas that the whole story has moved to. That's not really a spoiler. Mm. And this very, very early event is connected to what is going on in the town, but also not so much. Like, again, it's sort of this philosophical, like, what is, who is a mother? You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Who can be a mother? What about an adoptive mother? How do you survive with people disappearing, kind of going into that? But it's just, it was a very, like, somehow they got like the creators just got full reign and they were like, we're doing this. Like it felt very like we, we intentionally want to make this very sort of show with all this mythology uh -huh. and, and sort of the drama that we're going now. You know, what, I'm going to we hang up. I might start watching it again. Cause I'm getting like <laughs> all the feelings from it again. Yeah. I think it's, it definitely bears repeating because you catch things that you didn't before. So I could see watching it all over again. And it's only three seasons. And it's, I think... Perfect. It's all it needed to be. Yeah, it's 28 episodes. So it's as if it's the equivalent of an old school one season. Yeah, that's not bad. Um, so you <laughs> yeah. get that done in a month. Like one season of Lost. <laughs> Remember at one point you were like, geez. Yeah. Oh my goodness. Yeah. <laughs> There's so many episodes of Lost. Yeah. But Carrie, have we convinced you? What do you think? You have. I am really intrigued because it seems like just a lot of good interesting elements coming together and i'm i i want to see how they all interact with each other and play out and i think i think what put me over the top was that discussion just now about the 20 minute vignette from thousands of years ago and how it connects to present day which is yeah i i like that sort of stuff i think it's it's yeah. really interesting so yeah i'm definitely gonna give it a shot cool 
You know what? And I'm thinking of, and I don't know how tech you are, if you want to like put in music here, the beginning <laughs> of the, the big, the big gong sound at the beginning of the open credits. Kathleen, do you know what I'm talking about? I think so. <laughs> it's just very, like the, the theme song is just very memorable. It just like comes in on this note that oh, is yes, uh, yes. very intense. And it just made me think of it. Cool. <laughs> Well, they also change the theme song in season two, and then yeah. season three, they, they rotate among several different songs, hmm. but they always make the song be very relevant to things going on in the episode, which I really like that. Yeah. Yeah. It's just, it's also, I want to, like, on a final note, I think it's beautifully shot, mm-hmm. and it's shot in a way that the the directing is not intrusive, but it's always sort of different and and the music in the background of scenes, there's a lot oh. of little piano motifs that are just, they break your heart just hearing just hearing that motif. They also play an instrumental version of a Pixie song several times. Where is my mind? Where, yeah. Yeah. And it just is gorgeous and very, very emotional. The music was original, written by somebody, again, we're so good with the names, written by somebody who's known for doing like music scores, but it's, it's like originally, and actually the album I have on a like an instrumental mix and it comes on and then I always like get really emotional when it comes on yeah max richter yes that thank you oh cool (laughs) i I like max richter yeah yeah that's neat awesome and then can i say one last thing absolutely damon lindelof went on to show run the recent watchmen miniseries on hbo oh which was amazing and it felt it had the same it felt like it existed in the same world as the leftovers like all the stuff that's good about that because that, I mean, Watchmen is, a, it's not a typical superhero movie, but it's definitely kind of got like a sci-fi element. But again, it the the sci-fi element was there, but it wasn't the center. The center was like the character and kind of the philosophical quandaries and everything. So I, I was hesitant to watch it because I love the original material so much, but if, it, it felt like very much in the same ilk. And Regina King is in it too, so. Oh, wonderful. Cool. So I would recommend, and that's only nine episodes. So, hey, yeah, <laughs> I do like that's short been on my list for a while. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, awesome. Well, thank you so much for this. This was a great talk, and everybody should totally watch this. It's streaming on HBO Max, and yeah, thank you so much. Yeah, thank you, thank you. Thank you to Robin for coming on again. We always have a lot of fun talking to her. And now I've got a new show to watch. So thanks. (laughs) (laughs) Add that to your to-do list. (laughs) And next week, we're actually going to bring Robin back to talk about even more shows you have to watch. (laughs) We're going to be talking mostly about the Paramount Plus series, The Good Fight. Our theme music is by Joseph McDade. You can find me on Twitter at KWTaylorWriter. And me at Carrie Gessner. And you can find us together on Twitter at Pause Pop Podcast. If you'd rather email us, you can do that at positivelypopculture at gmail.com. Thanks for listening. Stay healthy and safe. And join us next time for another episode of Pause Pop. <laughs>